John Alexander Twentness was born to Catholic parents in North Dakota, where he attended Mass each week. He was taught to pray by his grandfather. Fascinated by religion and by the Bible at a very young age, for a time John attended Bible study class with the Assembly of God Church. After his family moved to Salt Lake City for his father's employment, John became acquainted with members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and was taught the gospel by stake missionaries. After studying the Book of Mormon and Bible together, John was baptized as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints just before his ninth birthday. At a very young age, John had a deep connection to ancient and modern scripture and the message of the restored gospel. He recalled and honored the many miracles that took place in his life through church service. He served a two-year proselyting mission as a stake missionary just out of high school. Following that service as a stake missionary, he was also called to serve a two-and-a-half-year mission to France and Switzerland in the early 1960s. Later, he would serve several years as a district missionary in Israel, at the same time serving as a counselor in the Jerusalem branch presidency. In fulfillment of promises made in his patriarchal blessing, John officially served as a missionary in four countries, United States of America, France, Switzerland, and Israel, and taught people from 50 nations, baptizing people from those four lands as well as Australia, Greece, Algeria, and Italy. John received his bachelor's degree in anthropology in 1969, a graduate certificate in Middle East Studies in 1970, a master's in linguistics in 1970, and a master's in Middle East Studies in Hebrew, with a minor in anthropology and archaeology in 1971, all at the University of Utah. Meanwhile, he earned enough credits for a bachelor's in French and geography and a master's in history, though he did not take those degrees. He did graduate studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and moved with his family to Israel, where he did graduate studies in Egyptian and Semitic languages and lived from 1971 until 1979. John taught Biblical Hebrew at the University of Utah from 1968 to 1971, and during 1970 and 71, also taught several courses in linguistics at the University of Utah and courses in anthropology at the Brigham Young University Salt Lake Center. During 1972 to 1979, he taught many courses in the BYU Jerusalem Center Abroad program, including Biblical Hebrew, Anthropology, Archaeology of Israel and the Near East, as well as Archaeological Methodology and Fieldwork, History of the Ancient Near East, History of the Jews, Historical Geography, as well as led most of the student field trips. He also did guided tours for BYU and others. Returning to the United States, he worked in the private sector for a number of years while teaching part-time at the BYU Salt Lake Center and the University of Utah. And he taught CES courses in the Magna Hunter region for a number of years. Meanwhile, he taught part-time at two high schools in Israel and served as a substitute teacher for about a year and a half in the Salt Lake City School District. To date, John has published over 10 books and more than 300 articles. He retired from BYU in January 2007. He and his wife, Carol, moved to Bella Vista, Arkansas. He continued sharing his passion for Scripture, and particularly the Book of Mormon, through his website, bookofmormonresearch.org. On June 3, 2018, after having suffered several strokes, John Twentness died, leaving behind a legacy of scholarship and a love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this special episode of both the Know Why and Rare Possessions podcast by Book of Mormon Central, we want to pay small tribute to some of John's contributions. My name is Nick Galetti, and with me is Stephen Smoot and Jared Riddick from Book of Mormon Central. We're here to talk about just one of John's many contributions, an article entitled The Hebrew Origin of Three Book of Mormon Place Names. 
But before we get into that article, I wanted to uh, give you guys an opportunity to reflect for a moment on his life and how his work may have impacted your own scholarship and your own education. I was certainly aware of John's work uh, when I was younger uh, in Pennsylvania. Saw his names on the publications that made the long journey out east. So I was reading his stuff, at, some of his stuff at a young age uh, when I was later a editorial consultant for Interpreter for a few years. Got the opportunity to source check a few of his papers and always found him a tremendously polite and informed man. Yeah, my experience is similar to Jared's. I uh, first encountered uh, John's work when I was a teenager and just sort of getting my feet wet in all of this uh, Mormon history and scripture and apologetics and so forth. And uh, I, I recall, I think the first book of his that I read was his book, Traditions About the Early Life of Abraham, that he co-edited with Brian Hauglid and John Gee, where he collected these extra-biblical and apocryphal stories about the life of Abraham that ha have many striking parallels with the book of Abraham in The Pearl of Great Price. And that just sort of set my imagination on fire, right? And my interest in this greatly increased because of that work that uh, John Twetness did. And so, like Jared, I also had opportunities to source check and work with John a little bit with some of his research. And he had many wonderful insights that he gave over the years. His publications, for the most part, stand the test of time and are continually relevant and offer interesting things for uh, students of the scriptures. What are some of the things that we might say as far as where would we put John's work in the scope of LDS scholarship? Is he a pioneer? Is he, where would you say he fits? He's a pioneer in some fields, uh, certainly the field of onomastics since looking at Book of Mormon names, which this article deals with. Also his book on hidden records, placing the Book of Mormon in context with the wider traditions of hidden records was also a, a great title. He uh, co-authored the, the book Testaments, uh, links between the Hebrew Bible and the Book of Mormon with David Bakavoy. Um, he did a great work there. He also uh, contributed to a number of other areas. Yeah, so um, in addition to uh, onomastics, uh, which Jerry just mentioned, um, he also mentioned Hebraisms, this book, Testaments, Links Between the Hebrew Bible and the Book of Mormon. And uh, back actually at the same time that uh, John W. Welch very famously was pioneering his work on chiasms in the Book of Mormon, uh, John Twetness was pioneering work on Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon. I believe they published their, their seminal pioneering work at about the same time in the late 60s, early 70s, um, and since then, there, there's been an avalanche of scholarship on Hebraisms, uh, Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon, Hebrew names in the Book of Mormon. I, I think it's fair to say that uh, in addition to being the pioneer of this work, which John certainly was, he also sort of gave us the capstone of Hebraism scholarship when he published with Brill, the very prestigious non-Mormon uh, academic press, Brill. He published in the Encyclopedia of Hebrew Language and Linguistics two articles on Hebrew in the Book of Mormon, Hebrew names in the Book of Mormon, and Hebraisms in the Book of Mormon. And from what John had indicated, he was invited by the editors to contribute to that. Um, that's how impressed they were with his work and how relevant they thought it was. Um, so it, that is a testament. In addition to all the work that Twetness did, that Jared mentioned with farms, his hidden records, testaments, and so forth, his capstone publications with Brill really make him stand out among the crowd in terms of the scholarship that he contributed. His, his influence in the field will really be missed. He had a great deal of unpublished work that we hope we'll be able to see the light of day. So we have him basically being the guy in a lot of ways with pioneering these comparisons between the Hebrew language and culture in the Book of Mormon as it's presented. And that's what this particular article is about. So let's, let's actually jump into it a little bit more by kind of setting the foundation. This might seem a little bit basic, but why is it that we are even trying to make a comparison between... Hebraisms and the Book of Mormon. Ever since the Book of Mormon was published, people have been very interested in trying to find connections with the biblical or the ancient world 
because, of course, the Book of Mormon purports to be a product of the biblical world. Uh, you have Nephi, the first author, who you know says that he and his family are coming out of Jerusalem. Nephi says that he has some kind of a scribal training, and he says it was after the manner of the language of my fathers and the learning of the Egyptians. So uh, there's some kind of uh, a Hebrew element in the record there. And just sort of you would naturally expect, if this is in fact an ancient Semitic record, that you would have Semiticisms or Hebraisms, either names or, or grammatical constructions and so forth, uh, present in the, in the text. So if you can find those things, if those things can be identified, that would lend credibility to the Book of Mormon's claims to historicity. Uh, and so for that reason, I think John Twentness and others have done a lot of work specifically trying to ground it in that ancient Israelite environment, in that ancient uh, biblical environment, uh, in order to both better understand the Book of Mormon in and of itself, but also to sort of shore up or affirm the historicity and the historical claims of the Book of Mormon. We know that Joseph Smith, later on in his life, after the Book of Mormon was published, started to study Hebrew quite a bit. Do we have any indication that he started to make connections in what he read and what he was learning? I feel like more with the Bible than with the Book of Mormon. You know, that's an interesting question. I'm not aware of any immediate places where Joseph Smith does this. He he does do this with biblical stuff. Um, in his King Follett discourse, for example, he goes bananas over Genesis one, <laughs> right? Uh, Better sheep than Elohim. A lot of fun and, with yeah, it. yeah. You know, he he goes nuts with this stuff uh, in in a biblical setting. But I'm not too familiar with him doing it with uh, Book of Mormon stuff. Um, you know, maybe Jared could talk more about this just briefly, but with, when it came to the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith and others were more interested in sort of New World antiquities. Um, they were more interested in uh, what they were finding in Central America and North America and some of these ruins and so forth. That's kind of more what they pointed to as opposed to uh, things like Hebraisms, which, um, which is more of a modern sort of scholarly approach. Okay. Yeah, they weren't, weren't so much interested in looking into the depth there and complexity of the text. At least for me, whenever I've read... 19th century prophets leaders in the church talking about the Book of Mormon, they're largely relating stories uh, rather than making the, the kind of connections that we, we see scholars doing today. Okay. It's nothing, nothing wrong with that. They had different priorities. So this particular article goes into the Hebrew origins of the names found in the Book of Mormon, Zarahemla, Jershon, and Cumorah. And he goes off, and we're going to lean on Stephen's mastery of the Hebrew <laughs> language yeah, here. I'll try my best. <laughs> so... Let's go through each one of these and kind of talk about what the significance of each one of these words are according to this article. Sure. So um, just, just a brief way of introduction to this whole topic. Biblical Hebrew writing and onomastics, so names and so forth, very often are bound up in some kind of a play on word or a pun or something like that that in some way drives or facilitates the narrative or the identity of the character or the place being identified, right? So it, it's very common to encounter somebody being named. So for example, when Abraham is called Abraham, well, first it's Abram, then it's Abraham, and God says, you will no longer be Abram, great father, but Abraham, a father of many nations. Well, that's what his name means, right? Abraham, an exalted father of nations, right? right. So, so there's a very clear like conceptual pun or play on words between Abraham and father of many nations or great father of nations, right? So when we see this happening in the Book of Mormon, and Jared mentioned Matt Bowen, his work has been wonderful in sort of showing this and uh, elucidating this. When we see this in the Book of Mormon, what we see are, it's not just that there's Hebrew words and Hebrew names, but that they work to facilitate the narrative, to drive the narrative, to elucidate the characters, the plot, and so forth. 
exactly the way that it does in the Hebrew Bible. And that's kind of what we see here in these three examples that John talks about. So the first one is Zarahemla. It's actually a city, we know, but the city is named after a descendant of Mulek. Uh, Mulek, of course, was one of the sons of King Zedekiah, who escaped Babylonian captivity and fled to the New World, was led by the Lord to the New World with his party, with his family, or whoever. And his descendant Zarahemla establishes, right, the city of Zarahemla that the Nephites later encounter. So John Twentness looks at the name Zarahemla, and he makes an argument that it's derived from the Hebrew Zarahemla, which would mean uh, a seed of compassion, quite literally. Zarha, seed, both in terms of like a physical seed that you plant, but also progeny or offspring. And uh, chemla, grace or pity or compassion or something like that. And so in this case, he thinks that the name Zarahemla, seed of compassion, uh, is sort of hearkening to the mercy that the Lord showed Mulek and his people by sparing them. And so accordingly, I believe it's his son or one of his descendants, Mulek names him Zarahemla, right? The, the seed or the child of compassion. So you'll see there the, the narrative of the story, Mulek escaping Jerusalem and escaping destruction, is reinforced by the name of this child, Zarahemla, the child of compassion, child of mercy, and so forth. So do we have a chicken and egg here? Which came first? Yeah, the, the, yeah. The sun or the city? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure. It's What's it's, historically typical? I mean, do they typically, I mean, we know we have the city of Nephi. Yeah. We do. We tend to name the city after, after the person. After right. the person, yeah. So it's, it's likely in this case that Zarahemla was a person. Yeah, for okay. sure. It, it was one of the descendants of Mulek whom the city was named after. Okay. Exactly like with Nephi. Okay. What about Jershon? Jershon's really great. This is actually one of my personal favorite examples of, of a Book of Mormon place name or onomasticon having a Hebrew root. Jershon, you'll remember what happens is uh, Ammon converts all of these Lamanites and he turns them into Nephites and they call themselves anti-Nephi-Lehites and they move, they want to go live with the Nephites, they want to become Nephites, but they aren't quite fully assimilated into the land of Zarahemla where the Nephites are living. So the Nephites say, okay, we will give them the land of Jershon and they say in several places as an inheritance or they will inherit the land of Jershon, right? That's very clear. So they receive or they inherit uh, the land of Jershon, and that's where the anti-Nephi-Lehi's Ammon's converts go. Well, Jershon, Twetness, and others have argued, I believe very convincingly, derives from the Hebrew verb yarash, which means to inherit or to receive, like as an inheritance. And so you have that verb yarash, which in English you could very easily convey as J-R-H, or I'm sorry, J-R-S-H, Remember the Hebrew letter Yod. No vowels. Well, there's no vowels, but also the Hebrew letter Yod is transliterated as a J many times in English. Um, that's where we get our word Jehovah from, for example. The, the letter is Yod in Hebrew, but we, we do it with a J. So you have Yarash, Jerush, that's the root. And then you put on this uh, suffix On, which uh, in Semitic topography indicates a place name for something, right? And Twetness lists several biblical examples. There's over 80 that he actually mentions are documented of Canaanite or Israelite place names with this on ending. It's kind of like Ville, I suppose, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, Clarksville. Or town. Or, or, you know, yeah, exactly. So so you put on at the end of it and it denotes the place. So literally, Jershon in Hebrew would be place of inheritance, where the Antinephilites go to inherit the land. So that link is there in the, in the Book of Mormon text. Once again, showing a very sophisticated understanding of the Hebrew and also the conventions for Hebrew wordplay and paronomasia in, in, in order to facilitate and drive the narrative. And frankly, a rather pretty impressive bullseye yeah. 
from Joseph Smith if this was made up. Right? Absolutely. That would that's not random. No, it's it's you know, and again, you mentioned Joseph Smith only studied Hebrew after he published the Book of Mormon, so it's it's hard to say that, you know, he's just extraordinarily lucky. I suppose you could say that if you want to, but I think you can also say, yes, right. this is clear evidence that that the Book of Mormon is authentically ancient as it's claiming to be. Yeah. So the last one that we're going to go into is Camorra, and it's a, it's a bit more of a complex name, and it's a complex subject for a number of reasons. And in the actual article, he kind of forwards a few different theories. Uh, so what is the significance of Camorra as a name? So as I'm sure pretty much all our listeners are probably aware of, Camorra uh, is the name of the hill where Mormon buries the records before turning the abridgment over to Moroni, who then finishes the record, right? It's also the place where the Nephites had their final battle, right? Where they were finally extinguished. And so it's it's a very significant site and name sort of in the Book of Mormon. And Twetness talks about how some earlier interpretations thought the name might derive from the Hebrew phrase, kumi ori, arise and shine. We have this in Isaiah 6, 60, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, where this appears. And so sort of broadly, it'd be something like, arise, O light. Um, that was an earlier explanation that was offered. And that has some, makes a little bit of sense, this idea of light and revelation sort of coming sure. out of the earth and that whole imagery there. But Twetness uh, has some uh, has some critiques of that just on sort of basic grammatical grounds, which he describes in the article. We won't get too much into that here, but he, he takes exception with some of the arguments there. Rather, uh, Twetness argues for a more, what he calls a more plausible etymology, which is that the word or the name Kimura is derived from the Hebrew root kemorah, which means priesthood, from the Hebrew komer, which is a priest, and you turn it into an abstract noun with the suffix ending, so komerah would be priesthood in a sort of broad abstract sense. He mentions that this would work linguistically, it would work grammatically. The The one critique to this, though, that he mentions is in biblical Hebrew, a priest, like a Levitical Israelite priest, is a kohen, not a komer. Komer is more just broadly priest, like a it can even be like a false priest or like a non-Israelite priest versus okay. a versus a Levitical priest, which is a Cohen in biblical Hebrew. That's where the name comes from, by the way. If you know anybody named Cohen today, C-O-H-E-N, oh. that's where that name comes from. Okay. Um, it comes from that Hebrew word meaning a priest, a Levitical priest. Um, but nevertheless, uh, Twetness points out that we do have some, like he points to a passage in Zephaniah where a Comer is used simply to denote a priest, not necessarily a false priest or a Levite priest, but just a priest in general. Um, and so he still thinks that might be a plausible etymology for Camorra, Camorra priesthood, which again has very nice Mormon overtones to it and Mormon significance to it. Um, and it's something that I think is arguable. It's worth considering. And it's, it, like he says, it's it's very plausible. See, for me, the fun thing about Camorra was the fact that there were multiple options that were live. Yeah. And that almost speaks stronger in some ways to the idea of a Hebrew connection because complex. There, yeah, there's there's multiple ways that it could go. That's a lot of bullseyes in a way. Not sure. a bullseye. Maybe we're kind of rounding the target. Yeah. <laughs> there, but but uh, so that's that's also very interesting. And so we'll definitely get into it more when we do a reading following our commentary here of the article itself. But uh, just to kind of sum up, what are maybe some other works, Jared, that we could recommend for people? Maybe even some that are in the Book of Mormon Central Archive. Well, so there's about 70 sitting in the archive right now we have permission for and have hosted there. I would hardly recommend his book. His uh, book that I mentioned earlier, The Book of Mormon and Other Hidden Books, Out of Darkness Unto Light, that he published with Farms in 2000. I think that's a tremendous book. Um, he also wrote a book called The Most Correct Book, Insights from a Book of Mormon Scholar. That's a 
a fun, I think, easily readable book. It's worth checking out. He he did a lot of stuff, and it's enough to wet the taste of any interested party for for quite a while if you want to go through his work. Excellent. Well, I want to thank both Jared Riddick and Stephen Smoot for coming in and going over this article and to help kind of honor the life of John Twentness. And we want to take you now to a reading of the article. And again, follow us at bookofmormoncentral.org. Check out his works in our Book of Mormon Central archive. We'll put a link to those in the posting for this episode at bookofmormoncentral.org. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much. The Hebrew Origin of Three Book of Mormon Place Names Authored by Stephen D. Ricks and John A. Twentness Edited by John W. Welch and Melvin J. Thorne A number of scholars have discussed the possible Hebrew meaning of some of the place names in the Book of Mormon. Three that have drawn particular attention are the names Zarahemla, Jershon, and Cumorah. Zarahemla Zarahemla was the Nephite capital for longer than any other city, Yet it was actually named from Zarahemla, a descendant of Mulek. Mulek, the son of Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, had come to the New World with other immigrants not long after Lehi's departure from Jerusalem. The name Zarahemla probably derives from the Hebrew Zarahemla, which has been variously translated as seed of compassion, or child of grace, pity, or compassion. It may be that the Mulekite leader was given that name because his ancestor had been rescued when the other sons of King Zedekiah were slain during the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. To subsequent Nephi generations, it may even have suggested the deliverance of their own ancestors from Jerusalem prior to its destruction or the anticipation of Christ's coming. Jershon When the Lamanites converted by the sons of Mosiah fled their homeland to escape persecution, the Nephites allowed them to settle in the land of Jershon. The name, though not found in the Bible, has an authentic Hebrew origin. The root, yersh, meaning to inherit, with the suffix on, that denotes place names. Wilhelm Bore, in his outstanding study, Die Alten Ortsnamen Palestinas, the ancient place names of Palestine, cites fully 84 ancient Canaanite place names with the ending on in biblical and extra-biblical sources mainly Egyptian and Mesopotamian writings. It is in this light that we should understand the words in Alma chapter 27, verse 22. And this land, Jershon, is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. In Alma chapter 27, verse 24, that they may inherit the land, Jershon. And Alma chapter 35, verse 14, they have lands for their inheritance in the land of Jershon. Cumorah Cumorah is the name of the hill in which Mormon buried the Nephite records before turning his abridgment of it over to his son, Moroni. See Mormon chapter 6, verse 6. Suggested etymologies range from a corruption of the biblical Gomorrah to a comparison with Qumran, the name of the site near the caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. An early suggestion linked Cumorah to the Hebrew words found in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Kumi Uri. Arise, shine. Related to this is David Palmer's suggestion that Kumorah means arise, O light, on a reconstructed form of Kumorah. But there are two problems with this. One is that the Hebrew word for light, though feminine in gender, does not usually take the feminine suffix ah, and is simply or. The objection is lessened by the fact that the Bible uses the form orah twice in Psalm 139 verse 12 and Esther chapter 8 verse 16. But the second problem is more serious. Because the Hebrew word for light is feminine, 
the word would take the feminine form kumi for the imperative, not the masculine kum. For a meaning of arise, O light, one would expect the Hebrew form kumi or, though kumi ora would not be impossible. The suggested etymology kum ora, mound of light or revelation, is a better explanation. Both proposals seem to be based on the idea of truth coming to light, being revealed out of the hill in the form of the Book of Mormon. And one must acknowledge that Hebrew or is occasionally used in the sense of revelation. But the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in the last days hardly explains why the place where Mormon hid the plates should have such a name in the late 4th century AD. A more plausible etymology for Kamora is Hiru Kemora, priesthood an abstract noun based on the word komer, or priest. This form is based on the Hebrew noun pattern miskal, pekula, with the vowel of the second consonant of the root m lengthened compensatorily from u to o, because the third consonant of the root r cannot be doubled. Kumer, or kumer, and kemora may be compared in both form and meaning of the Hebrew nouns kohen, or priest, and kehunna, priesthood. Some have privately objected that this explanation is unlikely because the term komer is always used in the Old Testament in reference to false priests, while the word kohen is used to denote Israelite priests. But this objection fails to note that both terms are used together in the Zephaniah passage. It seems more likely to us that the term komer was simply used to denote a priest who is not of the tribe of Levi, while kohen in all cases refers to a Levitical priest. Since Lehi's party did not include descendants of Levi, they probably used Kumer whenever the Book of Mormon speaks of priests. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Book of Mormon Central Podcasts, both rare possessions from the archives of Book of Mormon Central and our Know Why podcast. Both podcasts can be subscribed to in iTunes. We want to encourage you to subscribe to both podcasts and enjoy the content that's produced at bookofmormoncentral.org.